I think One Nation's been the only consistent political party for the last 20 years. They're not talking about you. Well, let me tell you, One Nation is talking about you. run away from One Nation. They're too scared to ask us any questions, mainly because we're straight talkers and we've got the answers. This is like a call to arms. You guys need to start making the real decisions and who you're going to vote for. Hello and welcome to The Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp and on tonight's show we had Pamela Jones, who I first saw on Sky News with Chris Smith a few months ago and straight away I knew that I had to have this lady on the podcast because what she was talking about was truly incredible and she really needs to get her message out there. So I did a, a bit of a search and I found an obscure website somewhere that had one of her blogs and I reached out to it and thankfully they managed to get her in contact with me. It's taken a few months because she's been overseas in Europe uh, doing research, but thankfully uh, she came on the show tonight. This is her second interview ever which i didn't know at the time uh the only reason i'm talking about this now is because we did have a little bit of a technical difficulty the uh the first part of the introduction was cut out for whatever reason i'm not sure but thankfully 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 uh it didn't cut out anything that pamela said so i just need to do this intro to let you know who pamela is and it's actually worked out well because she sent through some notes that she wanted included she felt that she didn't I have a chance to um, get the, get her message out completely. So she sent out a, th a few notes. But first, I'll introduce her. Uh, she's an environmental scientist. Uh, Pamela has led dozens of large-scale multidisciplinary environmental projects overseas. Of these, she acted as a specialist witness for the environmental assessment process in a high court case in a foreign government. This case was one and Time Magazine's praise it as one of the decade's best environmental decisions in the world. Pamela is now focused on exposing how biodiversity corridors in far north Queensland are being destroyed to install new wind farm projects and their transmission lines. Passionate about the future of our planet, Pamela draws on her wealth of experience to make the argument that we must better plan for the use of renewable energy and not clear and degrade our forests in the process. She's also an advocate of nuclear energy with a long history of research and direct experience. Now, this was a fantastic interview, let me tell you. Uh, she's very, very well researched, very knowledgeable. Now, the notes that she wanted me to include are these. First, she wrote, we must stop making climate change worse by clearing and degrading forests. We can fight climate change and care about nature at the same time. They are not opposing goals, but work better together. Unfortunately, we can't fight climate change not caring what we damage in the process and then replace nature afterwards. Too much is irreplaceable. When it is gone, it's gone. She goes on to say, Tropical forests are great carbon and water batteries. Why discharge them to the atmosphere and lose all their benefits? By desecrating forests to build wind farms, we lose a very substantial proportion of the carbon savings we would make by sitting the wind farms elsewhere. She finishes by saying, the present generations have the responsibility to bequeath the future generations a planet that is not irreversibly damaged by human activity. 
So I hope you are all excited about this podcast like uh, we all are after doing it. Again, I'm joined by Adam Zara and Rebecca Thompson, my co-hosts. Again, this is Pamela Jones, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, she's really delved into nuclear energy over the years, and now she's also focused on these so-called green renewables and wind farms up in the uh, north area of uh, Queensland. So we'll let her tell it all in her own words. Uh, hello, Pamela. How are you tonight? I'm great, thanks. Apart from the fact that we don't like what's happening in our forests up here. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I'm actually sitting in a very special spot. Far north Queensland, everybody knows about the Barrier Reef, but what we have forgotten about is that we have a, a wet tropical forest that was made World Heritage a long time ago. And in fact, when um, sites all over the world were looked at very, very, very closely, uh, the far north forests up here were named the second most irreplaceable natural sites anywhere in the world. So in other words, they were seen as particularly special. And at the time, they, uh, it was noted that there'd already been some damage done to it simply by cairns being here and the Atherton Tablelands and, you know, the farming that already occurs here. But it was noted that it was still in wonderful condition and with some buffer zones and other areas around it, it would be even more special. Um, I got started on all of this because typically uh, at my age, I've been, you know, I'm not a young person anymore. I go out to lunch sometimes with girlfriends and they were talking about these terrible things that were happening in the forests up here. And I'd never heard anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. And they said to me, is there anything else we could be doing instead of these dreadful wind farms? And I started talking a little bit about nuclear. And as a result of that, I've now been invited over and over again to give lots of talks on nuclear. And I've done a lot of homework since to make sure I'm bringing myself up to date. And um, so I now talk about two things in part the forests and what's happening, because there are no energy systems that don't have some downside. But what I'd like to do to start off tonight is just to show the world what is actually happening up here in far north Queensland. So this first site is probably the least valuable piece of forest that's disappearing, but I'd still love to show you this first video, if I could, please, the yes. one on the barn. Um. These wonderful photographs have been taken um, with a lot of care. Now, for those who uh, can only see the audio a bit, what's actually happening here is these massive roads are being put through the forest to put up a few wind towers. Because wind turbines are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the roads to get them to where they're going and to maintain them are getting wider and wider and wider. So um, they can be up to 70 metres wide. And what I'm looking at is incredible devastation of trees and more trees and more trees being pushed down. And the 
wind turbines are being put up on the top of the mountains and this is a very dangerous place to put them because this is where cloud formation happens all the way along our Great Dividing Range. And by doing this sort of thing, we're really threatening the hydrological cycles and all sorts of things which will lead to further floods and droughts in Australia. Um, it's happening in part in Queensland because we now have something called the Queensland Renewable Energy Zones. And they basically take in almost the whole of the Great Dividing Range in Queensland. And so there are projects that are being put up. Now, what I'm seeing in front of me is just absolute devastation of trees after trees after trees of mature forest being pushed aside. Now, um, the reason that this is happening here is because far north Queensland was named as a great place for some wind. Can you tell us um, why, um, why are these, these areas? So you mentioned that they're, they're so important. What, what is it about them that, are, that is so important? Um, they're extremely biodiverse. They're also some of the most ancient tropical forests in the world. They're seen as having a lot of significance uh, from an archaeological viewpoint. But tropical forests are rather special. And um, the, the issue here is that we do need to fight climate change. There's no question about that. But um, we can't fight climate change by killing nature at the same time and particularly knocking forests down. Forests, particularly tropical forests, and that's both wet and dry forests, um, do a, a lot of very hard work uh, fighting climate change by sequestering a lot of carbon dioxide in the, in the trees themselves. But there's even more in the soil and in the roots in the soil. So when you uh, knock down this forest, you're actually making climate change worse. It will take years before the new wind farms will actually counter the losses that you, that you have. Um, it has been estimated that nature itself will be responsible for about 39% of the mitigation of climate change up until 2035. It's not a case of fight climate change and then um, fight climate change and then go back and, and revive nature because we can't, much of it is irreplaceable. We have to look after both together. Yeah, now definitely. the picture that you've now got up, actually um, the light green place is where the new Chilumban wind farm is likely to be sited. All that green area that you can see is the, um, the heritage area, the wet tropics heritage area. And what has actually happened is that they upgraded the um, transmission lines along the ridges right up through Queensland, but particularly up this end up here. So when anybody's building a wind farm, they want to be as close to that line as possible because they have to pay to get any transmission lines to the main transmission line. Once they get it there, it has to be connected. And so they want to put it, one, where there's good wind, two, where they're close to the transmission line. Um, this particular uh, photograph is not wonderful, but it's the best I could come up with. But if you can see all the yellow bits there, 
all those yellow bits are also where there's just as good a wind as where they've put the chil they're planning to put the Chilumban wind farm. And those aren't necessarily such important areas. Their biodiversity is much, much lower. Um, and in fact, the Environment Department in Queensland has actually come up with uh, all these biodiversity corridors and buffers that they actually wanted right through the state to help our wildlife survive um, through climate change. And the Environment Department in Queensland has been cut out of all the decision-making processes about uh, wind farms. And so sorry, Pamela, can I just jump in there for a second? Um, why is the Environmental Department cut out? Because Is it because they're trying to... Oh well, my question is why is it why are they cut out? Why is the environmental department cut out when they with with, with the wind farm production? Well, this is something that I'd like to know. There hasn't ever, as far as I know, been anything that said, "Oh, we need to do this." It was assumed that if anything important came up, that it would trigger the EBPC Act, which is the federal act, and that that would be sufficient. But we know. Um, from the latest reports that have come out, which are now very, very public, that the EBPC Act can't even do what it was set up to do. And it was only designed to look after uh, endangered and, you know, uh, species. What it can't do is look at the cumulative impact. And one of the big problems with these wind farms is there's going to be massive cumulative impact. There's one farm and then another farm and then another farm quite close to each other, all up in this area, for example that are planned, and every time we turn around, we discover there's another one planned. Um, neither is the EPC Act designed to look at all the other environmental impacts. So it doesn't look at the hydrological cycles. It doesn't look at runoff. It doesn't look at um, ecosystems as a total thing. It, it, um, it doesn't do this. And the final decisions, in many cases, it, it, it's sort of a bit of a mix I went to a meeting about the uh, Queensland Renewable Energy Zones the other day with some of the government people. And uh, they're almost putting the final decision in the hands of the local councils. And the local councils don't have either the, um, the money or the expertise um, to make these environmental decisions. Uh, and they don't want to be making these decisions. What's happening is that these projects are now passed. Uh, there's two things that they've really got to go past. One's called CERA, which is through the planning department in Queensland. And the other one is that they've got to get through the EPPC um, um, provisions in the, in the federal government. But as you, as you said, as you said, the, the EPC provisions only worry about um, endangered wildlife and not about any other factor. Is that correct? Pretty much it's a case of looking after, in most cases, um, the cute and cuddlies. And there's a lot more to this than the cute and cuddlies because forests have many, many, many other uses. Um, they they make our air, air quality good. They, they keep our water clean. They do all these wonderful things for human beings, which nature in general, uh, we needed to survive through climate change, whether the temperature goes up or not. Uh, and forests do the biggest part of this job. Uh, forests around the world at the moment are actually lowering uh, the Earth's temperature by about one degree centigrade. If we chopped all our forests down tomorrow, we'd be automatically another temp um, degree hotter than we are now.
Well, that's the thing. Trees absorb carbon dioxide. So why would you be cutting down trees to put up wind farms when trees are the best um, thing to reduce the next carbon? picture I'd like to show you is the one that was called Statewide Biodiversity Corridor. Yeah, yep. give me one second. I'll bring that up. So, Pamela, I really do like um, the way that you do the comparisons of, and I'm sure you'll cover this event in a minute, but um, how um, a nuclear power plant would take up, let's say, one acre or two acres, and then, um, but a wind farm will take up, you know, hectares and hectares of, of space um, to produce less power than a decent-sized nuclear power plant. Um, that's certainly the case, and it, it applies to solar even more. Uh, nuclear does not take up very much space at all, and the reason for that, of course, is that it's such an energy-dense um, fuel. And the new um, nuclear power systems that are coming out now can actually uh, reuse the fuel waste that's been put aside for many, many years and use up to 96, 98% of the remaining waste as fuel. So it's going to be about 60 times um, even more efficient than what, what the current ones are. Um, these blue highways that you can see are special barrier areas uh, and biodiversity corridors that were planned by the Environment Department. In our area up here, they were planning some more um, uh, parks, national parks and all this sort of thing. And unfortunately, some of these have already, the areas have already been bought up by others and are about to be turned into wind farms. If you actually um, look very, very closely at that map, you can see some little red things there. The um, very top one, tiny little one up there, is up Caban. Yeah. So, you know, we look at the Caban pictures and we think, isn't that terrible? And it's right in the middle of, of um, you know, one of the biodiversity corridors. If you look down a bit further, the next one is Chilumban, which is the one that we're fighting about very hard at the moment. Uh, and as you can see, it just goes straight across everything. It actually sits right next door to the wet tropics. Some of the wind turbines are within 500 metres. Um, and this has lots and lots of implications. Um, after, when we see a couple more of the videos, I'll very quickly explain why. And can we just, can we just quickly jump back to uh, to this this one here? So your, yes. your point is, the the uh, the wind farms are planned in in the in the wetland areas here, but if you look at this big yellow area here, which is more, it looks like more of an arid sort of area. What, it's you know, further the, west. It's further yeah. west. The it's not as valuable as either agricultural land or as forest. Okay, so you're and saying, fact, that, yeah. You're, so if it had to be sited somewhere else, um, you know, there were other options. The reason it's not sited, unfortunately, is because of where the transmission lines are. But there is a big transmission line that's going to come across. And I did ask one of the technicians, um, technical people from the transmission people, whether or not that new line would be able to take lots of wind farms and, and things along its length. And he said he wasn't sure. Um, so because one of the things that often happens to wind farms is they can become isolated we've built quite a lot of these at a lot of money 
and they're, they're isolated from the transmission lines and they're not used. They're sitting there doing nothing. And we're spending millions, billions on them. But that's why I showed you that wind one. The other point yeah. I would like to make is, sure, um, the, the range where it's good wind for a wind farm is quite narrow. If it's too low, nothing happens. If it's too high, uh, they can actually blow down, and this is an area of cyclones. Um, wind turbines have been known to go down under the wind speeds that we do have here. They have been known to blow, blow over and blow down. It just seems that they just don't – it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I'm not – Look, I'm not. I'm not saying that renewable energy doesn't have a um, a place in the future, but the thing is, is it really renewable when you have to you you not you're not digging out of the ground fossil fuels anymore like coal or gas? What you you're digging out like um, you know heavy uh, rare metals. Um, you know, concrete's also heavy um, a, a pollutant. You know, when you're ma manufacturing concrete, um, and you're and I believe. Um, the wind turbine, the actual fans, the blades themselves are fiberglass, which are, aren't recyclable anyway. And then apparently they're getting, from what I think I read, was either every 10 years or they can last for 20 years, but they normally replace them every 10 years. So for safety or something like that. So it doesn't seem to me that, you know, you're cutting down all these trees, you, you, you make, you, you, you're changing from um, fossil fuels to um, precious metals. Um, it doesn't make any. It doesn't seem like it's actually really a renewable. It's all right when the when the when the when turbines up and and producing electricity. Okay, it's not polluting and it's making energy. But to get it to that point, it makes so much carbon deficit that it doesn't seem like it would cancel itself out anyway. Um, there's a lot of issues, and one is getting those materials. Um, at the moment, there's not a lot of investment in the new mines that we will need to do this. We're going to need twice as much, even just copper, twice as much copper within about five years as what we produce now. Um, we all have heard about lithium and that we might need 20 times more lithium and so on, though that may change. Things are changing all the time. The reason for changing the blades every 10 years is actually the edge of the blades can wear. Um, but they're getting, the wind uh, turbines are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The ones that will go up at Chalumban have 100 metre length blades, if you can imagine, a 100 metre length blade. It's enormous. So that's a 200, that would be just over a 200 metre span because you've got three blades on them um, in a circumference. It's going to be. Um, at the moment, they're 70 metres, aren't they? They're, they're enormous. They're bigger than, <laughs> higher, higher than the Harbour Bridge, for example. Wow. Um, they're well over 250 feet. So at some stage, they're going to have to come down again. And something that we should remember when we're thinking about wind farms and doing long-term planning is that none of the, the solar farms or the wind farms that we're putting up now will be there in 2050. We'll have to replace them by then and replace them again, possibly. Yeah. Um, so we're not only looking at the amount of materials to produce what we want now, we've got to do it again and again. And one of the advantages of nuclear um, is that the new ones are being planned, you know, will will last for a long, long, long time. And we're seeing that even the most of the nuclear power plants around the world are 40, 50, a lot of them will now go to 80 years. Um, 
The other thing that seems to be forgotten so much when they talk about how long nuclear takes to build is that it can take a long, long time to start up a new mine. It takes at least 10 years to start a new mine. So we're not going to have these materials to do much of this. I mean, Europe worked this out quite some years back that there wasn't enough stuff around the world just for them. And the United States has now done the same sort of exercise and they're, they're looking at it. And a lot of the essentials are actually coming from China. Hmm. And some of the processes, one of the most difficult part is not the actual mining, but turning the ores into the metals themselves can be very, very dirty processes. And in China at the moment, there's some of the most polluting things that they do. And they don't like it and they don't want it anymore. They're going to get to the stage where they say, we're not going to do this for the rest of the world. You know, you can have your own dirt. Thank you very much. We don't want to, we want, don't want to die from your pollution. Because at the moment, they're producing most of the metals for most of these things. And they're producing most of the uh, solar panels and so on. Um, yeah, 80% of the world's renewables comes from China. So, Pamela, I was reading through your blog this week. Um, there was a couple of topics I found interesting. So just to come back to conservation and wildlife protection, we know in um, the media and politics at the moment there's a lot of discussion about inclusion of the Indigenous Australian people, um, which obviously know quite a lot about our wildlife, our forestry, all that type of thing. Why do you think they're not being included in this discussion about the impacts that they, this is going to have on our environment? Um, the project proponents must talk with the Aboriginals. What they do normally, um, from what I can gather, is talk to the local land councils. The local land councils realise that most of the time they don't win anyway. And so what they say is, okay, if we're not going to win, we might as well get as much for our people as we can, and they go after other things, you know, money or jobs or something else. When we first started talking about Chilumban, um, the Aboriginals that lived in the area of Chilumban didn't know it was occurring. They had no idea whatsoever. And I've had Aboriginals absolutely howling their eyes out on my shoulders because Aboriginals have what we call totems. And a totem is what you are and what you should protect. It gives you your identity. I started realising just how difficult this was when, when I was in the Northern Territory uh, and a lady was trying to decide whether or not she should let a mine go ahead. And she said to me, I can't afford to get this wrong. If I get this wrong, it's not just for me, it's everybody else and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And I can't decide this is too hard and I can't just lay this down because I don't like this job. I was born with this and I die with this responsibility. I can't lay this responsibility down. Wow. Yeah, because their, their I, connection to the land is, is that's, that's, their, that's their religion. That's everything for them, isn't it? In their for beliefs. many of them, they... For many of them, and they, they say, for example, if Chilumban goes ahead, they will lose their identity. They lose who they are. 
Um, and we know that that is something that's pretty awful. We already know in Australia, for example, that there's now something called um, um, well, you know, eco-mental illness, where there's been some studies done where they're, they're suggesting that about 45% of Australians are already quite depressed about climate change and what's happening to nature, and they're worried and they feel powerless. Um, and this is one of the importance, I think, of getting some of this right because it's nature that gives us hope for our future. It's nature that gives us a sense of identity. And I think that that actually applies not just to Aboriginals but even many of us. You know, if, uh, this is why people go for holidays to these places. It renews them. It, it gives them a, a sense of the world again. Um, it, it's... Uh, I... I, well, I did send some videos to, uh, uh, um, I don't go much into the Aboriginal question because I'm not Aboriginal myself. I'm very, very much a European, a European background. Um, but I, I have at least managed to empathise a little bit with their pain and the pain is enormous. Well, I can kind of understand it as well because I remember, I know this is, off to not off topic, but it's a bit like weak compared to what's happening out there in real life. But I remember I watched a movie, you know, one of those end of the world movies and the meteor uh, asteroids come down and hit the earth and basically wipe, you know, civilization off. And I got scared. And I, I remember saying to my parents, I said, Oh, you know, would that happen? And you know, what happens to the earth? And they go, don't worry. If something like that happened, we might die, but the earth would survive. Um, in most, and you know, funnily enough, I wasn't so worried about the population of populace dying, but I was happy that the, it gave me comfort that the earth would survive after something like that, just so that we would have another chance, maybe eventually again. Um, so um, I can completely understand, well, I can understand or empathize as well of how one would feel if, you know, you would really think that the earth is actually going to be destroyed and not be there for us. So um, yeah, I don't understand it. We can keep, we need to do our best to preserve the best of what we've got now of nature, which would help the world to recreate itself and recreate it for us too, if we're still around. Um, the thing about building roads, for example, like like I was showing you with the wind farms, you can say, oh, there are only just a few, few roads. The issue is that most of the creatures that live in the forest can't cross those roads. We know that there are major, um, what we call edge effects on forests. But we're also discovering that up here is that we have um, a problem with biosecurity. We get um, fungus is being taken into the forest, so we're going to get dieback and diseases carried into the forest. There's two diseases that have already been recognised. We, we, we would like to keep them out of there. But I'd like to... Um, if we look at the, um, I'd love to show the other couple of videos, if I may. Yeah, yeah, we can jump in the, the Tulumban one, if you'd like. Yes, please. And then I, I'd love to show the other one. We could show one after the other, if you like. Okay, we'll jump into this one first. Now, the quality of the forest at Tulumban, where the wind farm is going, is 
it's not all wet forest, it's dry forest, but dry tropical forest has its own um, values in the same way with CO2 and a lot of other things. And what happens is that the creatures in the wet forest actually do traverse to the dry forest as well. And there are all sorts of wonderful botanical species in this area. You know, we often know about some of the cute and cuddly animals, and I certainly care about those, but what we forget about is all the other hundreds and thousands of species that live in these areas. Um, David Attenborough actually said that this entire ecosystem right through in the, in, you know, from the, this wet tropic zone right through to the, the Barrier Reef is possibly one of the most interesting areas in the whole world from a, a natural history viewpoint. That's one of the little creatures that might get threatened by all the things that are happening. Um, we're seeing pictures, for those who can't see all this, of quite dense forest. It's dense forest with a lot of wonderful tall trees, big trees. Some of them have trunks that are about a metre in diameter. Um, and there's just, just wonderful, wonderful forest. I'll put all these links in the description for anyone that's listening, you yeah, know, just in the audio lovely. version, they can find it themselves. And we should also give a shout out to, um, to Stephen, um, how did you come across Stephen, who's taken all these images? Um, well, the people who first had lunch with me, <laughs> I then met Stephen through that because we did, we, we, um, I was invited to come and talk about nuclear as an alternative um, fuel um, way of getting energy. And Stephen was showing all these wonderful pictures of what was going on. Um, Steve is a wonderful wildlife photographer. And he does a tremendous amount for the environment, but somehow he's got to make a living too. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll put his link in the description as well to to get because he's been very helpful sending us all these images, and he's done a lot of great work with these videos. So, oh, he's he's absolutely incredible. He, he does wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah. Now the final, the final um, video. If we could have this picture up again, if that's easy enough. Yep. Give me one second. Emily, you mentioned the proposed wind farms could add pollution to the Great Barrier Reef. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Um, all of these are in the catchments that feed into the ocean. All of these wind farms that are proposed are on mm -hmm. that side of the mountains. They're on the side that drains down to the sea. Now, you would hope that it wouldn't reach there. Um, but I'll sh show you another um, farm in a moment, which is the reason I was asking for this one. Yep, I've got it right here. Um, if you could pop, pop that one up for a minute. If you look right down the bottom, you can see things called Upper Burdekin and Mount Fox, mm -hmm. which are other proposed ones right down the bottom here. There's even more happening there. They're even bigger still. And this area particularly drains very, very easily um, down. Now, one would hope that it doesn't get that far, um, but at the moment there is no checking on what any of the wind farms do, do from a, uh, an environmental viewpoint. The only thing they have to worry about is how many bats and birds run into the wind turbines. 
Nothing mm. else has to be reported. Nobody goes up and checks what's going on. It's um, nobody's going to check the water quality or any of those other any of those other issues. Is Pamela? Is that because of um, because it's supposedly you know environmental energy that it just doesn't come under? Um, I was reading the reports and letters and stuff like that. So all um, energy manufacturers have to control their waste, except when it comes to renewable energies, they don't have to take into account their waste. Um, yes, at this stage, that seems to be the situation. And why, I haven't managed to fully work out yet, it seems to have been a case of, we better hurry, 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 hurry. We haven't been doing anything. We've now got to get into a hurry. And there hasn't been enough thought put into it. Um, with the meetings that we had the other day, I was getting the impression that um, Queensland government might be getting some of the message that perhaps they had better talk to the environment department and actually even produce maps of the, the environment department says, well, these should be areas that you avoid. And they hand those to the proponents in the first place or even say, you know, try and avoid these areas or something. Um, and they they were very open to those sorts of suggestions. So whether anything happens or not, I, I don't know at this stage. Um, the reason that I... I um, put that one up to say about Upper Burdekin and Mount Fox, if you could run that very short Mount Fox video. Hiya. Um, and there's a point just at the end that I was going to bring up that introduces it. Mount Fox. This has an Aboriginal name as well. That's... Um, there are some plans to completely desecrate that area including that volcano, by the way. Oh, wow. It's so lush. Part of the area of the Upper Burdekin. Yeah. Part of the Upper Burdekin area was actually going to um, be turned into National Park. It was the next one that was actually uh, pictured as National Park. Um, it was on the drawing boards, but um, it all looks like it might be too late. It's also... Um, koala area. Now most people don't think of koalas as being part of far north Queensland but believe it or not we have a very special population of koalas and for those who can't see the video we just saw a lovely picture of koala and we're just seeing lots of lovely forest again undisturbed forest which makes it so valuable um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about koalas um, even in my little town of Atherton, where I live on the Atherton Tablelands, a koala was wandering around our streets here and, and in the end he got cornered because he climbed up a power pole and, um, <laughs> uh, yes, anyway, he's very well known, that, that male koala, and I've heard his call and all those sorts of things. There used to be a lot of koalas up here and they were shot and shot and shot and shot in the very early days. The population that is here now is breeding nicely. They travel very long distances. They seem to be more tolerant of a range of food and climate. The genetics, uh, the, the, the same species, but the genetics of them may actually help our koalas cope with higher temperatures. But one of the terrible things that, that we're learning about ko these koalas in particular, and perhaps many other koalas, their mating calls, the mating calls of the male, 
is in that very, very, very low sound that wind turbines make. It's almost wow. identical. And the females travel for kilometres and kilometres and kilometres to get to the male. Now, I make jokes about this simply because I want to sort of picture this one, people to picture this. But I see desperate female koalas trying to climb up wind turbines. This isn't a joke. It will that probably... That's the first thing to my head. It, it's, it um, will probably also disturb the patterns of breeding for quite a few other species up here. Um, the reason that the, the sound is so low and they do the mating calls at such a low thing is because it travels better through the forest. It travels much, much, much further. It travels kilometres and kilometres. You know, high-pitched sound doesn't travel so far. And um, so it's not uncommon for our native species to have uh, mating calls that are very low in, in sound. That's that's, um, that's terrible. I, even if even if what you're saying, if they don't travel those distances, I can imagine that the sounds of the wind farms would even disturb that the the sound kind of getting through and and, and reaching the females. It, you know, it's just a complete disruption. And particularly when there's so many of them, one of the things that have concerned us, it's not just one; it's one and another one, another one. Every time we turn around, there seem to be another one. And this is only, you know, the, that map that I showed you with those um, three wind farms on them is only quite a short distance. It's not very far. When I say not very far, I mean, you know, a couple hundred kilometres, but it's yeah. they're pretty close to each other. And, and there are hundreds of kilometres of roads associated with each of those. And even for the original uh, wind farm that we had, which was Mount Emerald, which was with small blades and small everything else. We had to modify roads to, to get them up there. If you can imagine what it's going to take to get 100-metre blades right up into the mountains. Well, you um, would, I imagine you need 150-metre-wide roads. Sorry? Sorry, Pamela. Um, you, I would imagine you would need 150-metre-wide um, roads because if you had to traverse, um, because another thing about it, these are at the tops of the mountains as well, so it's it's technical terrain that you have to carve through the the mountains to actually get the blades up to the the windmill sites. Is that correct? It's not just like on flat level land. It's in the very that's hard right. and you have to that's dynamite and level. And that's part, I mean, even if they come along later and say, okay, we and they're saying, well, look, we, we'll rehabilitate and we'll make these roads narrower and so on. They've still got to get up there um, quite frequently anyway. They've got to change the oil uh, in the turbines every year. Uh, they may have to change the turbines themselves in 10 years' time. And if you think about the steepness of those roads, which go a long way down towards the coast, um, they're crossing creeks, they're crossing all these little drainage canals everywhere, left, right and centre. Unless somebody's terribly, terribly careful about making sure all this, this dirt and pollution um, soil doesn't go into all of, all of these systems, uh, it damages all the frogs that live there, it lives, you know, all the water. And, of course, you can start seeing how pollution can be travel, can travel right down through the system. Why we do know you think... Sorry, Pamela, you finish. Sorry, you go. That's no, fine, yeah. 
I was just going to ask you, why do you think that all this information that you're telling us today, it's, I mean, it's very logical, it's very common sense, and I'm sure there's evidence to support it. Why is it being ignored? I mean, the whole idea of these wind turbines is to, what, protect the environment, but then the information that you're providing and many others are providing is just being completely ignored. Why do you think that is? Um, there seems to be a mantra out there that 100% renewables can do everything. And there's a number of universities around the world now um, that are putting out models that say this is how to do it. In fact, there's now one for Australia and I've looked at it closely and I think um, uh, I was going to say a very rude word then. Um, <laughs> it, it's academic, naive, doesn't understand most of the engineering, doesn't understand much of the um, issues associated with, with um, the movement of electricity on long transmission lines, all of the issues that you get with control of grids, nothing. They're just not understanding and but for as long as these people are getting out there and telling everybody and telling people who have no science background that this is the situation, um, they believed. They absolutely believed. And this is where I had another lovely picture for you, which was controlled. Have you got that one somewhere? Uh, yep, yeah, I'll bring that up. Just give me a second. I just can't believe that, you know, I mean, just touching on Rebecca's point, like, you know, these wind farms and solar farms are meant to be the saviour of the planet. And to me, from what I can see is more than anything, they're hurting the planet and they're going to hurt the planet more than they're going to, to save it. They're, um, every, I'm one of these people who never leave anything alone for too long. In other words, I read something that sounds positive again. And then I have to think and think and think about it again. Um, these great big wind turbines actually produce a lot more energy, so you need less wind turbines. There's all sorts of, you know, and when I sort of learn that, I think, oh, maybe they won't take up so much area, maybe they won't do this, maybe they won't do that. But most of the issues still remain, the issue of what do you do with the waste at the end. I'm reading lots of things about the recycling. Uh, there is somebody now in the States who claims that he can recycle the wind turbine, the wind turbine blades. Um, they're certainly saying there's no reason why we shouldn't be recycling this, 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 and this. But I want to look at what's already happening in Australia and say the chances of them being recycled up here are, are negligible because I know how hard it is. We collect all our plastics and everything up here but the transport costs of getting the plastic down to Brisbane means that it becomes a, an economic stupidity. Um, so just saying that everything's going to be recycled, I think, is very, very naive. But to come back to this picture here, um, which you had up a minute ago, if I could just, if you could show that one again for a minute, um, I'd like to actually. Um, say that this came from Nuclear for Climate. Um, if anybody's really uh, would like to learn about the difficulties of running high levels of renewables, this is a wonderful site to go to because they will explain a lot of the basic engineering and science 
for you. Uh, Nuclearforclimate.com.au it is. Um, now, if you see there, I know these things to already be true. And what I learned the other day is if we're not very careful, um, this is this is what it's going to be like. Now, there are people who claim and there will be people who work hard to make it easier for the, the people in the control rooms to actually run the systems, but a cloud just has to go over the top of a, um, a solar farm or the wind stops blowing for some reason or another, and he has to take some very instant action because the grid instability is very, very easy. And when, when they keep talking about how expensive nuclear is and how cheap wind is, they never tap with wind. They don't look at all the issues, all the costings for nuclear take into account the waste, they take into account the mining, they take into account everything. The, the cost of running the grids for uh, renewables is very, very high. And the, the greater the amount of renewables you have, the higher that cost goes up. Um, you need all sorts of fancy things to help you cope with grid instability. Um, and we've already learned a, a little bit about batteries, but the way we're using batteries so far in Australia is to just give these poor control room people a chance to switch from one sort of, of one source of energy to another or to turn off when there's too much coming from one source or another. Um, because if you don't, you can blow your whole system up. So let's shift gears into nuclear energy. Yep. Uh, what can you just give us a little bit of a back history of uh, how you, you know, came across nuclear energy? What what led you to researching nuclear? Well, I have. Um, well, partly I started again recently because people were asking me to teach them a bit about it. But I first visited nuclear. Um, um, Lucas Heights when I was about 15. I actually held a bar of uranium in my hands when I was 15 in my bare hands. Uh, these days they would make you put gloves on, but in those days um, it was deemed to be perfectly safe and it was to hold a bar of uranium. Um, over the years as a biochemist, because I was a chemist and biochemist, I've used a lot of radioactive materials, um, sort of in biochemical research you use um, carbon-14 but others as well uh, and so I've, I've just had that a little bit of background chemically uh, about it always um, when I came back from overseas um, the I, I uh, came here with a technical division at the Northern Territory um, Mining Department and that meant Ranger Uranium Mine and I went out to the site and I was hearing all these terrible, all the terrible things that was happening and all the dreadful happenings, um, the leaks that occurred here and the leaks that occurred there and, and we should shut things down. And I met my current husband there, um, who is a, a real expert in, in that area, uh, and particularly mining wastes and that type of thing. And um, the I had a team of people who used to travel around the Territory measuring. We'd take water samples absolutely everywhere. And because of the way the costs worked, we used to get the total chemistry for things, not just a few elements, but everything. So what I learned very, very quickly was um, that uranium occurs everywhere. 
I saw it for myself. There's uranium in, in any water that I've ever measured. But the water that was coming out of Ranger actually had less pollutants in it than almost any other water that I measured anywhere else in the Territory. Mm -hmm. um, all these stories about leaks, one of the things that's happened with nuclear, um, and because of a couple of big things that occurred in the early years, um, such as all the dreadful nuclear weapons testing uh, and then Chernobyl um, and the fear that spread regulation relating around nuclear has been extraordinarily tight and got tighter and tighter and tighter over the years. So what happens now is nearly everything has a triple system. Yeah. So, for example, um, these so-called leaks, any tap can leak occasionally. So if you have a tap inside a plant um, that's uh, looking at, the, you know, um, treating the uranium ore, what you do is make sure you have some way to catch it if there is ever a leak. Uh, you could say you have a bucket under it. I'll, I'll do that for simplicity. <laughs> but that's not enough. That's only one layer. So then what you have is regulation. That means somebody's got to go around all the time and check that nothing's leaking and check all the check all the taps to make sure nothing's leaking. No, that's not enough. That doesn't count at all. So then you have an even bigger bucket around the bucket. In other words, and you often get this in chemical industries where you have great big buns that go right round. And that's still not enough. So you then have a third protective layer. So that nothing can, nothing escapes, and so all these so-called leaks. Any time a tap dripped, they were reported, and the um, anti-nuclear people immediately jumped on this and said, oh, "Terrible danger! Terrible danger! Terrible danger!" There's been a drip. Now that drip of water probably had nothing in it much anyway, in the first place, but it was caught in the first bucket. In fact, the I don't know. I think I know of only about one instance where it went into the to the second layer. It never went into the third layer, and it certainly never left the site. And so um, I, I learned very, very quickly that a lot of things that were talked about were actually rubbish. Um, but there is this tendency for fear, and we've been fed fear for I used to say thirty years. I'm now starting to think it's fifty years. And I do a two-hour lecture all about fear and why we fear and go through all of the various aspects of fear. And I'm going to show you one to show you how certain groups try and feed us fear all the time. And this is one of my favourites, if you've got that one to, that you oh, can yeah. put up. I'll bring that up in a minute. Okay. That, was, that untruth was sent around the world. How many people actually died from radiation with the, at Fukushima? The answer is actually none. Any of the deaths were from fear. Fear is the one that causes the problems. There was a lot of people moved who should not have been. If they had left everybody in their houses and told them to go into their houses and stay there for a day or two, everything would have been fine. And nobody would have had more radiation 
than they would have got from having a CT scan. Wow. Now, what's still happening because of the fear about all of this, the standards for radiation are far, far too tight. Sometimes I think probably maybe a thousandfold. And what that does is it's meant that these people have only just been allowed to go back to their houses. They took them down. They, they wouldn't let them back until they'd got it down to one millisiever, which is less than the background almost anywhere in the world. Yeah. Because we all live with radiation absolutely every day, every food, everything that we eat, everything we drink, um, travelling in aeroplanes, um, cosmic rays, whatever that's natural, is around us all the time. Now, the importance of that well, that graph that I showed you was that it said that that was radiation or inferred that it was radiation going right across the world and people in the US actually took so much iodine they made themselves sick from taking too much iodine. <laughs> the reality was, um, you know, and it had a very official stamp on it, the NOAA, and it was a graph that was put out by the US government, National Oceanic and, uh, and Atmospheric Administration. But it's actually a graph of wave height. It was actually yeah. the wave height that it, that it arose. Uh, it's, it's absolutely shocking. I actually, funnily enough, I've also done research on this topic and I actually knew that that was not the right, that was a falsely labelled um, a graph that you've got there. So, but it's sh absolutely shocking of the propaganda that they've used to um, instill fear with nuclear or radiation. Yes, it's done on purpose. It's, and in fact, I've seen a number of other graphs of this sort where they've actually, um, that one at least was true in that it was an NOAA graph. But I've seen other ones. Uh, there was an Australian one. Uh, where it said it came from the Australian Radiological Laboratory. I think that's where it was. Um, and for 10 years they put up on their website that it wasn't their graph and that they didn't measure those sorts of things and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But their logo had actually been put onto the graph. And it wasn't taken down. And I saw it presented again only six months ago on television. And is it true that there's research coming out that certain levels of radiation are actually beneficial to humans? Yes. It looks as if there's a major difference between low-dose radiation and high-dose radiation. And in fact, that applies to almost everything, if you think about it. Not enough water is not a good idea. The right amount of water is a wonderful idea. Too much water and you can actually kill people if you force them. It doesn't matter. And if you look at almost anything, there's a biological sort of zone. All the work that's coming out, and there's still a little bit more um, perhaps should be done before we lower all the standards, but anything under about 100 um, millisieverts is, is pretty safe. You've got a 0.03% chance of cancer if you get a, a lovely big dose of 100 millisieverts. And I don't know how you'd even get managed to get that anywhere in the world. You, you, um, whereas in terms of cancer, the lifetime risk um, 
from all other things and for other reasons is nearly 50%. Um, so all that radiation does possibly is that very small amount. But in very low dose, the biochemistry seems to be uh, completely different to what we believed. It used to be believed that you got, you know, one alpha particle went in and, and hit some DNA and knocked the DNA and you, you, you um, changed the DNA slightly and you had cancer almost. It doesn't work like that at all. Our body, in fact, um, fights cancers absolutely every day of its life. And what we're discovering, that if it's a bit primed with a slightly more low-dose radiation, you're even less likely to get cancer than if you haven't been primed with a bit more <laughs> low-dose radiation. They're now discovering that people who, as part of their, their work or because of where they live in the world, uh, get more radiation, actually have lower levels of cancer than those who have lower levels of background radiation. Um, interestingly, um, it was the Nevada desert where so much of the um, bomb testing was done in the US at one stage and there were um, that part of the world uh, received a lot of radiation. Yeah. In fact, the gentleman who, who um, ran for a long time the, the research work, and it was millions and millions of dollars worth of research work on this, um, was scared, stupid about this. He was sure he was going to get cancer and he, he went around and measured as part, part of his early, very early career. He went around measuring radiation levels everywhere and in people's blood and everything he could find. And by the end of his life, he was saying, uh, actually, guess what? My state has the lowest cancer cancer rate in, in the united states wow, wow. that's amazing and Maybe so we've got a little more to learn about looking that way yes yep sorry maybe they hide that information from us because you have to pay for radiation treatment whereas if you've got low dose naturally just through natural cycles of things it kind of eliminate well reduces risk of cancer anyway um You'd be quite surprised at just how high the dosage is that they use in medicine. You know, we worry about the sorts of levels that came out of Chernobyl or somewhere else. And, and the reality is that the amount of radiation that you get when you do have cancer and then, then have um, treatment that way um, was enormous. I was, I was absolutely astounded when I first found out how high they were. But they're getting lower now these days because they're managing to target them better and better and better. Um, there are people, and you may have heard of them, who've had cancer, had radiotherapy, and then they get cancer again. And it has sometimes been thought that that's been started, but they're massive, massive doses. But I love the Chernobyl story. I mean, I, I guess you all know the Chernobyl story, of course, yeah. that the people, the, the peasants who went back to Chernobyl, who refused to leave and have lived there all their lives, are strong and they're healthy and all their mates who didn't come back are now dead. Huh. Yeah. Wow. And when you ask them, are they afraid of radiation? One of the, one of my favorite um, stories I heard was they said, no, we're more, we're more uh, scared of wolves and snakes because there's now five times more wolves in that area of the world than there used to be. And what wow. people don't realize is that there are a lot of people, um, I'll just check, check my numbers quickly. 
Um, there's a lot of people who actually live in Chernobyl. Yep, I was right. Um, there are 7,000 workers who work at Chernobyl. Um, some of them have a, a two-week shift on and a two-week shift off, and they um, live in that restricted zone, right in the very restricted zone for that fortnight and then go home. Um, so there are lots of people who live in that so-called so dangerous area. Now, I see all these shows where they say danger, 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 danger. Isn't it terrible? Um, or, they, or they get out a Geiger counter and, you know, swing it around and, and um, look, click, 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 isn't this terrible? Um, I wish they'd do that somewhere else. These Geiger counters are now so sensitive. Um, if I took it over and did it on you, it would probably go click, 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 click. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, bananas are radioactive. Sorry? Sorry, I've heard bananas are radioactive. Yes. Um, there is a certain amount of radioactive potassium in everything that's got potassium in it. And they love yeah. to pick bananas. But the truth is that um, potatoes are even higher in, in potassium, so probably potatoes are even higher in, in, in radiation than, than, than uh, bananas. Um, there is... There is radioactivity in everything. We've evolved with it. And I think that's why we've got these systems too. It's it's all part of it's all part of the story. We now know that the biochemistry is quite complex. We're still learning about that biochemistry. But everything that I learn is is um, showing me that that's exactly what the story is. I'll show you what I'm taking myself to now at the moment. That's my latest book. Low-dose radiation. Uh, that book um, actually has about a 1,000 references in it, which one day maybe I'll work my way through some of them. <laughs> so, Pamela, just to bring it back to, you know, with the wind farms and the EV and all that kind of stuff, would you, just would you prefer um, uh, modular, small modular nuclear power stations to be put in a in the where they're putting their wind where they're putting a wind farm, um, would you prefer to have a small nuclear mod, uh, modular modular nuclear power plants there instead? Yep. Yeah, of course. So that, yes. that's kind of like that's kind of answers. If I have one in my backyard, I would happily have one in my backyard. Um, what's actually happening at the moment? I think Australia's in a wonderful position because we can't have nuclear right now. We have to change all our legislation including state legislation, the legislation in Queensland, some of the most onerous. We have to change that legislation first. That'll take a while. By the time we've done that, there will be a lot more of the new stuff. So what's actually happened? You see, nothing was built for a long, 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 long time. It sort of went almost into a bit. It's now starting to happen. And the new technologies are now out and about. And one of my favourite stories is about Thor. Have you heard about Thor? Yep. A Swedish, a, company, a Swedish company is building a boat called Thor. And it, of course, is designed to run on a nuclear reactor. But it's more than that. It belongs to a company that runs lots of um, tourist boats all around the cold parts of the world. And so um, they're going to use this boat to go from one of their tourist boats to another um, 
feeding them electricity. Hmm. So they'll be running on all of their their tourist boats will be running on nuclear power. Wow. And this Thor boat is actually going to be run on thorium rather than on uranium as a as a fuel. So I love the name, the fact it's Swedish and it's <laughs> you know Viking country and the whole works. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and they've designed the look of it. It's a big black beast that will be able to cut through any ice. And they say it's also a rescue vehicle. It's designed as a rescue vehicle as well. I think it's wonderful. Uh, and I thought I thought you were talking about the comic character Thor, God of Thunder. <laughs> so you know, well, it, is, it is. I think that's why I love the name. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, think I love it's very it. Very clever. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're getting to the end of the show, Pamela. Is there anything that you want to touch on just before we finish up? Um, if you want to pass on about my blog, I haven't put anything in it for ages, but if anybody wants to learn a bit more about nuclear, there's an awful lot of information on my blog that they can learn about various aspects. I'm finding that um, it's already getting out of date, but I might make one comment quickly about Ukraine, if I might. Yeah, yeah. sure. I've been, um, right from the beginning, I've been watching. Uh, when they're designing a lot of the new nuclear facilities, whether it be the canisters to hold the waste or the nuclear power stations, they they do all sorts of testing, and that includes making sure that the shells that they now put around the outside, that you could crash a plane into them, for example, and that they will hold up under those conditions. There has been shelling of... Um, uh, a number of nuclear facilities in the Ukraine over time. I've been watching this one for a while. It's a very stupid thing, but it's been done, and so far nothing has happened. Um, they do things, for example, in the US, uh, when they're testing their canisters, they run trains into them and they... You know, they've got to stand up to a train, a high-speed train running into a canister or they, or, or you know, or they run them something at them fast enough that it's the equivalent of an aeroplane running into just even a canister. Um, so the, the safety levels that are now built in are absolutely enormous. And on that safety issue, um, we often talk about them being engineered in. Uh, many of the um, triple-layer engineering now is such that it doesn't take human intervention or anything else. If something goes wrong, um, the, the cooling systems and other things go into operation automatically without human intervention. They happen by gravity or they happen by some other way, and, they, and they're usually, again, triple, triple safety. So if one system doesn't work, another one will. So um, I'll leave it at that. Well... Um just back to your blog, can you just give the address for that so people can uh, find it? It's simply um, mynuclearjourney.au. And we'll, we'll put that in the description as well so people can find you. Are you are you active on social media at all? Is, can, you, can people find you? I tend to be, but I don't seem to end up with as much time as I would like. But being older, I find I don't have as much energy either. Um, <laughs> But I think um, I, it's time I started twittering properly. 
I don't even know how to use I, that. I, don't I, worry. I actually like to leave it to some other youngins to do all this. You know, there are now young people who are doing this. Um, there's a couple of really clever young people who are doing it on Instagram and other things, and I, um, that's their job. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody's got to take the baton, I guess. You have to pass the baton on to somebody. Well, I'm trying. Well, we, we want to thank you very much for, for coming on the show tonight. Uh, we've really enjoyed this. You've given us a, a real wealth of information that's contradictory to the narrative that's out there that we're, they're all, you know, getting huge doses of this narrative about renewables and, and nuclear energy. You've, uh, you've diff definitely given us a different perspective. So we certainly appreciate that. And if you have any, um, uh, any findings that come up in the future, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you back on and we can discuss those in the future. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, right, everyone. everyone. Thanks for watching. If you if you enjoyed this episode, please share it out. I think it's very important that everyone sees what uh, Pamela had to say and the evidence that she showed. So uh, follow us everywhere, uh, YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts. We're, we're everywhere. So thank you very much for watching tonight, and we'll see you next time. Bye.